0: Millard Erickson delves into the concept of special revelation. Special revelation refers to God's distinct manifestation to specific individuals at certain times and places, granting them the opportunity to foster a redemptive relationship with him. Special revelation contrasts with general revelation, which is God's universal display of himself through creation and human conscience. In Hebrew and Greek, the terms used for reveal suggest the uncovering of something previously hidden. The necessity of special revelation arose post the fall of humanity, depicted in the biblical story of Adam and Eve. Before the fall, humans had a favourable relationship with God. However, post-fall, humans lost this connection due to their inherent sinfulness. Their spiritual understanding became clouded, and they turned away from God. Now, they required more than just a general understanding of God's existence. They needed specific, deeper knowledge to restore their lost relationship with him. Erickson emphasises that the primary objective of special revelation is relational, not merely informational. God's special revelations aim to transform knowledge about him into a personal acquaintance with him. Such revelations are selective, focusing on essential knowledge for faith, rather than satisfying mere human curiosity. For instance, While the Bible provides minimal biographical details about Jesus, it offers enough information for faith and relationship. Special Revelation's relationship to general revelation is intricate. While some believe special revelation became necessary only after humanity's fall, Erickson suggests that special encounters between God and humanity might have existed even before the fall. The biblical account hints at specific communications between God and the first humans, However, post-fall, the significance of special revelation increased. With humanity's separation from God's direct presence and the new challenges of sin and guilt, specific guidance became crucial. Contrary to a common belief that general revelation is inferior, Erickson asserts that both forms of revelation are interdependent. While general revelation might lack the depth and clarity of special revelation, it provides the foundational concepts upon which special revelation builds. When understood together, they offer a comprehensive and harmonious perception of God. Also, Erickson delves into the style and nature of special revelation, accentuating its personal characteristics. At its core, special revelation is personal because it represents the intimate relationship between a personal God and human individuals. This is evident in several ways. 1. Name revelation. A profound example of God's personal nature is seen when he reveals his name to Moses as I am who I am. Exodus 3:14. A name is intrinsically personal, signifying identity and essence. 2. Covenants. God's commitment to personal relationships is also demonstrated through his covenants with specific individuals such as Noah and Abraham, and more broadly, with the nation of Israel. 3. Benediction, the ironic blessing, Numbers 6:24-26 epitomises God's desire to personally bless, protect and be gracious to his people. 4. Personal experiences, the Psalms filled with testimonies of personal encounters with God, further underscore this point. Paul's ambition as described in Philippians 3.10 exemplifies a deep longing for a personal relationship with God. 5. Nature of Scripture. Scripture is inherently personal it does not provide generalised truths akin to mathematical axioms. Instead, it offers specific statements regarding particular events and realities. It doesn't read like a theological manual filled with arguments and counterarguments. and while it contains creedal elements, it doesn't offer a fully systematised set of beliefs. 6. Content Focus The Bible refrains from speculative topics not directly related to God's redemptive work and his relationship with humanity. Topics like cosmology are not extensively explored, and the Bible avoids delving into mere historical details or biographical specifics. Its primary focus remains on revealing God as a person, affirming aspects of his nature crucial for faith. In essence, Erickson highlights that the essence of special revelation is deeply personal, revealing a God who desires intimate relationships with individuals, and showcasing this through various facets in scripture. Moreover, Erikson asserts the anthropic nature of God's special revelation. While God is depicted as a transcendent entity beyond our comprehension, the way he reveals himself is very human-centric, a necessity for our limited understanding. This revelation isn't anthropomorphism, but rather it's presented through human language and thought, allowing us to grasp it better. Erikson highlights that God's revelations utilise the prevailing human languages, An instance is the use of Koine Greek in the Bible, which was once considered a divinely designed language. However, it's now understood as the common vernacular of its era. Furthermore, the Bible incorporates idiomatic expressions and customary methods of describing nature, measurements and time from its time. Special revelation is anthropic not just linguistically, but also in its modality. God often chose common human experiences such as dreams, communicate his messages. Though dreams are an everyday phenomenon, it's the unique content within these dreams that separates divine revelation from mundane experiences. In addition, this perspective is highlighted with the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus arrived in the guise of a regular human with no apparent divine distinction. Most perceived him as Joseph the carpenter's son, a testament to his ordinary human appearance. However, There were instances when the revelations deviated from usual experiences. For instance, the voice of the Father speaking from the heavens and miraculous occurrences stood out as distinctly divine. Yet a significant portion of the revelations were rooted in natural happenings, underscoring the anthropic nature of God's communication with humanity. Further, in his work on the analogical nature of special revelation, Erikson explores the idea that God employs analogical language to reveal himself to humanity. This language is situated between univocal, one sense, and equivocal, different meanings, language. For instance, while the word row can have different meanings, trees arranged or the act of rowing, the term tall can apply similarly to a man and a building. Analogically, while there are similarities in how a word is used, there are also distinctions like how run can apply to both marathon runners and trains. Erickson asserts that God's revelations use elements that are common to both the divine and human experiences. This means that when religious texts speak of God's actions or love, the essence is the same as human understanding of those terms. For example, when scripture mentions God halting the flow of the Jordan River, it's akin to engineers stopping a river. The impact is that water stops flowing beyond a certain point. Similarly, when scripture tells us God loves, it signifies the same qualities we understand in human love, a consistent, selfless concern for another. Erickson clarifies that by analogical, he means qualitatively the same. So while humans may understand power, knowledge or love, God possesses these attributes infinitely more. Our human limitations mean we can't fully grasp these infinite aspects, making God always somewhat beyond our comprehension. While our knowledge of God might align with his self-knowledge, it's limited and won't be exhaustive, even in the afterlife. Analogical knowledge is feasible because God, with his omniscience, knows which human experiences can be used to form a meaningful analogy. Humans, without divine revelation, cannot independently establish a significant analogy about God since they lack complete knowledge of both sides. Thus, our understanding of God, based on the analogies provided in special revelation, requires faith. It presupposes that these analogies reflect divine truths. In this context, Erickson posits that theologians working with special revelation face a challenge similar to empiricists, uncertain of the exactitude of their sensory perceptions. Besides, Erickson delves into the ways in which God has manifested his divinity or expressed his will, predominantly through historical events, divine speech, and the Incarnation. He begins by discussing certain historical events described in the Bible that reflect God's role and influence in the world. These include the calling of Abraham, who is considered the progenitor of Israel, the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt through a series of plagues, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Erickson suggests that understanding these events is pivotal to make sense of God's nature since they directly reflect his acts and interactions. Erickson then tries to determine the nature of the relationship between revelation and historical occurrences by exploring three different views. The first, as put forth by G. Ernest Wright, interprets the Bible as a historical record that reveals God's deeds along with mankind's reactions to those acts. Wright underscores the importance of comprehending God through the lens of these historical narratives, rather than through isolated, abstract doctrines. The second perspective associates Revelation with neo-Orthodoxy school of thought, which indicates on personal encounters between God and humans. It argues that Revelation does not occur merely through the retelling of historical events, but through each individual's experience of divinity in those events. Essentially, this view highlights the subjective nature of revelation. The final viewpoint, attributed to Wolfhard Pannenberg, perceives history itself as revelation. His view asserts that the actions of God in history are bona fide revelations of his attributes, which could be understood and proven through reason. Interestingly, Pannenberg's philosophy interweaves the notion of general and special revelations, creating a unique interpretation. In sum... Erickson presents a multifaceted exploration of how history has been utilized as a medium for divine revelation. From perceiving history as a recounting of God's deeds to viewing history itself as a revelation, these perspectives offer a complex yet insightful understanding of divine revelation. Additionally, divine speech represents a major modality of revelation. Frequently in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, there are references to the word of the Lord coming to prophets. These prophets believed that their teachings were not their own, but directly from God. For instance, the book of Revelation was John's attempt to convey God's message. The Bible underscores that God does not only reveal himself through actions, but also speaks to tell us about himself and his intentions. It may seem that God's speech is direct, but it always manifests in a human language, such as Hebrew, Aramaic or Greek. This indicates that even God's speech is a mediated form of revelation. This divine speech can manifest in different ways, as an audible voice, a silent internal voice, or as a part of visions or dreams. Often, prophets might hear God's voice silently, without any external audible sound. Another form is concursive inspiration, where revelation and inspiration combine. When scripture authors wrote, God instilled thoughts in them. At times the writers might be unaware of this divine intervention, while at other times they might be more certain, as seen in some of Paul's writings. Also, the spoken word of God often served as an interpretation of certain events. Without divine interpretation, significant events like Jesus' death might be misinterpreted. Thus it's contended that the interpretation of these events, as presented in the scriptures, holds the same divine status as the events themselves. There are challenges in constraining all of Revelation to just divine acts in history. For instance, wisdom literature doesn't necessarily fit into the acts-in-history model. Moreover, even historical accounts, like the burning bush, have elements that challenge the strict revelation-in-history view. There are biblical narratives that go beyond traditional historical events, like the creation story. James Barr and others suggest that direct communication from God to individuals is as vital to the tradition as revelation through historical events. The conclusion drawn is that direct communication from God is an equally genuine mode of revelation as his acts in history. Furthermore, the concept of the Incarnation centres on the belief that Jesus was the fullest revelation of God. Jesus' life and teachings are viewed as God's special revelation while some might perceive Jesus as the unmediated presence of God, it's essential to recognize that since God doesn't possess a human form, Jesus' humanity played a role in mediating the divine revelation. Yet this humanity wasn't a hindrance, it was the channel through which God's nature was revealed. The Bible maintains that God communicated through Jesus, positioning the incarnation as the ultimate form of revelation, surpassing previous methods. In Jesus's life, the dual facets of Revelation, as a series of events and as divine speech, are most evident. His miraculous deeds, sacrificial death and subsequent resurrection epitomise God's redemptive history. Jesus' teachings exceeded those of any prophet or apostle, showcasing direct communication from God. His words didn't merely relay God's messages, but were divine utterances themselves. In addition, Jesus' impeccable character was itself a revelation. His divine qualities, evident in his actions, emotions and demeanour, showcased God living among humanity. Instances from the scriptures, like the awestruck centurion at Jesus' crucifixion or Peter's reaction after a miraculous event, underscore that they saw the Father's revelation in Jesus. Jesus embodies the convergence of act and word in revelation. He communicated the Father's message and mirrored his nature. His existence was the most comprehensive manifestation of God, because he was, indeed, God incarnate. The Apostle John, pointing out this, stated that they had seen, heard and even touched the one from the beginning. Jesus himself declared that seeing him was equivalent to seeing the Father. Further, Erickson discusses the concept of special revelation, where the primary consequence is knowledge of God, Erickson explores the two dominant views regarding the way God reveals himself, propositional and personal. In the propositional view, revelation is considered as the communication of propositional truths, having faith as a response to believing those truths. Contrarily, personal revelation sees God presenting himself, requiring a trustful and committed response. This personal revelation perspective, popularized in the 20th century and characteristic of neo-Orthodoxy, reiterates a personal relationship over objective information. The implication is that viewing God objectually diminishes his infinite nature and reduces him to a control subject. However, Erikson debates that neither of the two views alone offers a complete understanding of divine revelation. Both objective knowledge, propositions about God, and personal knowledge, relationship with God, are fundamental to understanding God's nature. He criticises the personal revelation view for not providing sufficient basis for faith, questioning how one can be sure that the God they encounter is indeed the God of the Bible. Besides, Erikson critiques the inconsistency within neo-Orthodoxy on this matter, as proponents often argue detailed doctrinal positions while rejecting the idea of propositional revelation. These theological discrepancies demonstrate a disconnect between the encounter, personal revelation, with God and the derived doctrines from that same encounter. Erickson concludes that revelation is both personal and propositional. God primarily discloses himself, partly by sharing something about his nature. The two aspects relate closely and combine to form a complete understanding of special revelation. Consequently, Erickson suggests adding two more categories of relationships with God, I-you and I-he slash she, to fully apprehend the divine-human relationship in terms of revelation. This approach honours the dual nature of revelation without reducing God to an impersonal it. Additionally, Erikson revolves around the concept of scripture as revelation. He contemplates whether the Bible, when viewed as a written record, can be regarded as revelation. Erikson examines two perspectives of revelation, one as the act or process of revealing and the other as the content that is revealed. If Revelation is only seen as the act, then the Bible would not qualify as Revelation. However, if one includes the content of the reveal in the definition of Revelation, then the Bible can be considered as such. Erickson uses the analogy of speech to further explain this point. Speech can refer to the act of speaking or to the content of what was spoken. Similarly, a recording of a speech is not the actual event of speaking, but it still preserves the content of the speech, and thus can be called the speech. Also, linguist Kenneth Pike's observations are incorporated. Pike contends that a strict denial of propositional revelation stems from a limited understanding of language's capabilities. Pike's example of a scientific lecture, initially incomprehensible to students but understood after years of study, suggests that the content's truth is constant, regardless of immediate comprehension. This implies that revelation, if propositional, can be preserved. Moreover, Erikson addresses the concept of progressive revelation. He warns against misconstruing this term as an evolutionary idea where parts of the Old Testament might be viewed as outdated or wrong. Instead, he posits that later revelations complement earlier ones. This is exemplified by Jesus, who enhanced the teachings of the law, and by the author of Hebrews, who contrasts God's previous communication through prophets with his more recent communication through his Son. Erickson concludes by repeating that the nature of God's revelation is both progressive and complements prior revelations without contradicting them. Furthermore, Erickson delves into the debate over the form of divine revelation. Is it best understood as narrative or propositions? Recently, many have favoured the narrative approach Seeing it as a more authentic representation of the diverse genres of Scripture. This leaning towards narrative has its roots in postmodern epistemology. While it's undeniable that Scripture features numerous stories, like Jesus' parables, Erickson points out that Jesus also provided propositional explanations for these stories. In addition, this can be observed in parts of the Old Testament, where narratives are accompanied by explanations. Erikson terms this as the communicative function of narrative, distinguishing it from hermeneutical or heuristic functions. Interestingly, even books championing narrative theology tend to use propositional methods to convey their ideas, supplementing with narrative examples. Erikson suggests this indicates the critiques against propositional revelation might be misguided. Instead of viewing narrative and propositional forms as mutually exclusive, He posits that they can be complementary, with propositions holding primary importance. Last but not least, the epistemological challenges posed by Immanuel Kant, especially in his Critique of Pure Reason, have influenced theological discourse for over two centuries. Kant postulated that genuine knowledge integrates two components content derived from sensory experience and the ordering provided by the mind's rational structure. This knowledge framework, however, excludes the possibility of cognitively comprehending supersensory entities like God. According to Kant, we perceive only phenomena, things as they appear to us, but cannot ascertain their alignment with noumena, things as they truly are. This epistemological divide is particularly profound in discussions on supersensory entities, leading to paradoxical conclusions about their existence. Efforts to navigate this epistemological chasm have been manifold, Hegel proposed a dialectic approach, wherein opposing concepts, thesis and antithesis, fuse into a new truth or synthesis. Contrarily, Kierkegaard believed such opposites couldn't be reconciled rationally. They demanded an existential, willful choice. Dialectical theologians, like Barth, underlined the irreconcilable tension between these dualities, asserting that only divine intervention could traverse the vast distinction between God and humans. Recent discussions, pivoting towards the divine perspective, employ innovative paradigms to address the knowledge conundrum. Kevin Van Hooser employs speech-act philosophy, portraying God as a speaker whose locutions, words, should be interpreted based on their intended outcomes, illocutions. John Morrison, drawing from Einstein's multi-level conceptualization, suggests that understanding God requires ascending through the layers of meaning God descended in Revelation. Central to these deliberations is the acknowledgement of the asymmetric nature of the human-divine dialogue. This asymmetry underscores God's supreme magnificence. God exists in a dimension distinct from ours. While humans cannot access God's realm, God can span the divide to ours. Building on this notion, contemporary physicists speculate about the potential interventions of beings operating in higher spatial dimensions, suggesting a God beyond all spatial dimensions could interact even more effortlessly with our world. In conclusion, special revelation refers to God's unique manifestations to specific individuals, enabling them to cultivate a redemptive relationship with him. This contrasts with general revelation, God's universal display through nature and conscience. Erickson discusses the necessity of special revelation, which became significant after humanity's fall in the biblical story of Adam and Eve. Pre-fall... Humans had direct relations with God, but post-fall, due to sin, they lost this connection and required deeper knowledge for reconnection. Erickson debates that special revelation aims to provide relational, not just informational knowledge of God, focusing on crucial faith elements rather than pure curiosity. Further, Erickson underscores the personal nature of special revelation. This is evident in name revelations like I am who I am, Covenants with individuals like Abraham, blessings like the Aaronic blessing, personal experiences reflected in the Psalms, and the nature of the scripture which isn't just a theological manual, but a relational document. Besides, Erickson underscores the anthropic or human-centric character of God's special revelation. While God is transcendent, his revelations are made understandable through human language and experiences, like dreams. The use of Koina Greek in the Bible once deemed a divine language, is now understood as the vernacular of its time, emphasising this anthropic nature. Additionally, Erickson explores the analogical nature of special revelation. God's revelations use common elements between divine and human experiences, implying that when scripture discusses God's actions or love, its essence resonates with our understanding of those terms, albeit God possesses these qualities infinitely more. Lastly, Erickson highlights the ways God has revealed himself through historical events, divine speech and the Incarnation. Historical events like the calling of Abraham and the life of Jesus Christ offer insights into God's nature. Perspectives on these historical revelations range from seeing the Bible as a record of God's actions, accentuating personal encounters with God, to viewing history itself as revelation. Divine speech, seen in references like The Word of the Lord, signifies direct messages from God to prophets.